Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino continues our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark, today looking at chapter 2 and verse 13 through to chapter 3 and verse 6. And now, here's Carrie. Thank you, worship team, for that uplifting music. Before I begin my talk on the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 13, to chapter 3, verse 6, I'd like to tell you a short story that hopefully we can all think about, myself included. Once upon a time, there was a town of ducks. On Sunday morning, all the ducks came waddling out of their houses and waddled into church where they squatted in their pews. After they sang their duck hymns and said their duck prayers, the duck minister began to preach. Ducks, you were born to fly. God has given you wings to soar like eagles. Fly, ducks, fly. This rousing message was met with cries of, Amen, and preach it. After the service, the ducks lined up to thank the minister for his inspiring message, and then they all waddled home. Let's open in prayer. Father, help us to embrace and enjoy the life that you have given us. Remind us that we are your children, free from the chains of sin, by Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. Bless our minds to remember and to embrace the freedom, the hope, the joy, and the peace we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to quote a very wise man who once said, It's easier to preach twelve sermons than to live one. So with that in mind, continuing our series in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. A large crowd went to him, and he started teaching them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, Alphaeus' son, sitting at the tax profiteer's office. He said to him, follow me, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was reclining for dinner at Levi's house, many tax profiteers and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. This was due to the fact that he was followed by so many people. When the Bible scholars who were Pharisees saw him reclining for dinner with sinners and tax profiteers, they asked his disciples, Why is he eating with tax profiteers and sinners? Jesus heard them and said, People who are well don't need a doctor, only people who are sick. I haven't come to invite people who are right with God. Instead, I've come to invite sinners. If Galileans ever held a contest to choose the most hated man, Levi, the tax profiteer, or tax collector as some versions call him, would win hands down. Spiritually, 
Levi stands condemned as a sinner because he makes his profit by cheating, intimidation, and bribery. Poor and powerless people suffer as his prime victims. The circle of friends extend to no further than his own kind. To everyone else, Levi has fallen off the bottom of the social scale because he functions as a hireling of the despised Roman government for who he collects taxes. Neither Jews or Romans want anything to do with him. Later, as a disciple of Jesus, and to signify a new beginning, Levi changes his name to Matthew, meaning gift of God in Hebrews. Now, this doesn't mean that we all have to change our name when we become a Christian. As my wife Lorraine says, if everybody did that, we wouldn't know who they are. And why would, Levi call, why would Jesus call Levi to be a disciple? The truth is that Jesus specializes in rejects. Seeing something of great value in a rejected man, Jesus puts him to the test by saying, follow me. Without hesitation, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, walks away from his tax tables forever, probably singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John have the family fishing business to which they can return. But Levi breaks his contract with the Romans and his career is finished. Or is it just beginning? Perhaps Jesus needs an accountant's mind to compliment Mark the journalist and Luke the physician for the writing of the Synoptic Gospels. Levi's strange alliance between his Jewish background and his Roman contact gives him a perspective of Jesus, the King, and the Kingdom of God that neither Mark or Luke can contribute to. After Levi leaves his tax office to follow Jesus, he invites tax collectors and sinners, the only friends he has, to celebrate his decision at a dinner. Jesus' ministry of hope moves from a hated man to a hopeless class of people. To bring the ministry of hope to a class of hated people spotlights the failure of established religion. And this is where the Pharisees come in. It is a criticism of Jesus' authority. Why is he eating with tax profiteers and sinners? They ask the disciples, perhaps trying to plant a seed of doubt in their mind. And when Jesus heard this, he is more than a match for their question. People who are well don't need a doctor, only people who are sick. I haven't come to invite people who are right with God. Instead, I've come to invite sinners. Thinking that Jesus has complimented them for being righteous, the Pharisees cannot contest his word of hope to a class of people who are hated and hopeless. So who are the hated and hopeless classes to whom Jesus wants to bring a ministry of hope to in our generation? The good news is that all people and classes find hope in Jesus. Separation from sin does not mean 
for us to separate from sinners. As proof that Jesus is the Christ, all people have hope. Jesus was a friend to sinners. They liked being around him, and they longed for his company. Meanwhile, legalists found him shocking and even revolting. So what was Jesus' secret? You know a person by the company he keeps, the proverb goes. Imagine the alarm of people in the first century Palestine who tried to apply that principle to Jesus. What might explain why Jesus made one group, sinners, feel more comfortable and the other group, pious, feel so uncomfortable? Okay, the next, next thing we're reading is uh, the Matthew, the next few verses in uh, Matthew chapter, chapter 2. People ask Jesus, why do John's disciple and the Pharisees' disciples fast? But your disciples don't. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus asked in turn. No, they can't fast while the bridegroom is with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and that is when they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old coat. If they do, the added piece will tear away from the old one and make the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wine will burst the skins, and then both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into fresh wineskins. Fasting is the issue when the clever Pharisees conduct a scheme to trap Jesus. Their attack comes in a form relatively innocent question. Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not? The strategy is obvious. They want to split this new movement into fractions that they can control. But Jesus skillfully answers their question with words similar to the testimony of John the Baptist after John's disciples complained, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Part of John's reply is found in John chapter 3, verses 29 to 30. The bridegroom is the one who has the bride, but the bridegroom's friend stands and listens to him and is overjoyed when he hears the bridegroom's voice. So the joy is mine, and I have it now. He must become more important, but I must become less important. To refresh the memories of John's disciples, Jesus brings back the analogy of the bridegroom in order to confirm the ministry of joy as a keynote in the kingdom of God. So to put on masks of death and garments of mourning for fasting in the presence of Jesus, the bridegroom, is totally out of place. Jesus turns his enemy's criticism into an opportunity to announce that joy is a quality of the kingdom of God that the Pharisees have lost. Jesus does not destroy the discipline of fasting. He extends the wedding analogy to remind his hearers that the time will come 
when the bridegroom is taken away. Fasting is appropriate then. Some scholars believe Jesus is making an early announcement of his death. There's a time for joy. There's a time for fasting. Sorry, there's a time for joy and there's a time for sorrow. There's a time for feasting and there's a time for fasting. Now Jesus goes on with two analogies, but with one common point. The good news of the gospel, which is the ministry of joy, cannot be contained in the old forms of religion. In the analogy of sewing new cloth on an old garment, Jesus rejects the past work approach to the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God is the new joy that stretches all systems beyond the breaking point till they burst. And so the analogy of pouring new wine into old wineskins, the wine will burst the skins, and then both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into fresh wineskins. If Jesus is to sound the note of joy for his ministry, he must leave behind the dead weight of all religious systems and all religious forms. You can't mix the two, or the both will be ruined. The ministry of joy that Jesus introduces as a keynote for the kingdom is different. It has substance as well as spirit. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 records the result of his service and his suffering. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the originator and completer of faith. Instead of the joy set in front of him, he chose to undergo the cross, thinking nothing of the shame. He has taken his seat at the right side of God's throne. Joy characterizes the spirit of Jesus in his service, and a vision of joy sustains him, even in his suffering. As part of Mark's case for the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let joy be added as an authoritative proof. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. On a Sabbath day, Jesus was passing by the grain fields. While his disciples were going along, they started picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees kept saying to Jesus, Hey, why are you doing this? It is not legal on the Sabbath day. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions felt hungry and found themselves in need? Jesus answered. In the time of Abatar, the chief priest, David went into the house of God and ate the sacred bread. Now it was only legal for the priest to eat the sacred bread. Yet David gave some to his companions too. Jesus added, The Sabbath was made for the sake of the person. The person wasn't made for the sake of the Sabbath. And so the human being is also the master of the Sabbath. In the English translation from the Greek, both translations are correct. Human being and son of man. The plot thickens and controversy rages. Again, what starts out as a natural and innocent act by Jesus 
Jesus' disciples end up escalating into a confrontation between the authority of Jesus and the authority of the Pharisees. Walking through the grain fields on a Sabbath day, the hungry disciples pick the grain, shuck the skins, and eat the kernels. Nothing is wrong with their act, except that they are working on a Sabbath day. Among the thousands of rules of the Pharisees are four which dictate against reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing a meal on the Sabbath day. Strictly interpreted, the disciples are lawbreakers. Jesus does not contest the fact that his disciples are breaking the letter of the law. He does contest a view of the Sabbath that kills the spirit of the law. He draws on scripture what the Pharisees accept as authoritative for his counter-question. With a hint of sarcasm, Jesus says, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions felt hungry and found themselves in need? In the time of Abitar, the chief priest, David went into the house of God and ate the sacred bread. Now, it was only legal for the priests to eat the sacred bread. Yet David gave some to his companions too. In one question, he establishes the fact that the sacredness of the Sabbath is built upon the moral principle of grace rather than the religious regulation of the law. Two principles guide the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath was made for the sake of the person. The person was not made for the sake of the Sabbath. And contrary to some opinions, Jesus does not give people license to do what they please on the Sabbath day. Rather, he reaffirms the moral principle that the Sabbath is made for people, a day of physical restoration and spiritual renewal. The other principle of the Sabbath that Jesus establishes as part of his kingdom ministry is that the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Boldly now, Jesus is declaring his authority. It is by his Spirit, the Spirit of grace, that the law of the Sabbath is fulfilled. When Jesus challenges the scholars of the law with their own scriptures, he sets people free from legalistic claims, chains. And when Jesus calls out his prerogative as Lord of the Sabbath, grace takes over where the law has failed. Let's read chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. <clears throat> On another occasion, Jesus went to the synagogue and there was a person who had a withered hand. The Pharisees kept a close eye on Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath as that would provide them with an opportunity to accuse him. Jesus said to the person who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then Jesus asked them, On the Sabbath day, is it legal to do good or to do bad, to save life or to destroy it? But they kept quiet. Jesus looked around angrily. He was very upset by the insensitivity of their minds. Stretch out your hand, Jesus said to the person. The person stretched it out, and his hand was restored to its proper place. At this, the Pharisees left and immediately started.
started plotting with the friends and supporters of Herod against Jesus, plotting how they were going to kill him. Jesus has put the scribes and Pharisees to silence on such issues as forgiveness, eating with sinners, fasting, and Sabbath rules. While winning the debates, Jesus cannot win his opponents. When Jesus returns to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees wait to try and trap him once again. And according to the rules of the elder, elders, if this person with the withered hand wants to be healed, he must wait for a weekday because it is not a matter of life and death. The person with the withered hand sits in Jesus' path, needy and ready for healing, even though it is the Sabbath day. Jesus has mercy on him. The person with the withered hand comes first, even though the healing is destined to provoke a showdown. Standing with him front and center, <clears throat> center in the synagogue, Jesus turns to the Pharisees with one final appeal from his message of the good news. Surely they will hear his plea for mercy. On the Sabbath day, is it legal to do good or to do bad? To save life or to destroy it? Jesus is really asking two questions here. The first asks that mercy takes precedence over the Sabbath law. And by implication, Jesus is saying, here is a man in need. If I feel to heal him, even though it's the Sabbath, am I not doing evil? Mercy shatters the logic of rabbinical law. The second question Jesus asks, is it legal to save life or destroy it? If the Pharisees have no mercy for saving life, they incriminate themselves as killers of the Sabbath day. The Pharisees are silent. As Jesus looks into the soul of each one of them, he reacts. His own eyes ignite with anger. At the same time, his heart breaks. Israel has rejected their Savior. But it's not time for weeping. The man with the withered hand stands at his side, needing to be healed. He heals them, and at the same time, the law of the Pharisees stands intact. But their power with the people has been dealt a fatal blow. For the, Phar for the Pharisees, only one alternative remains. <clears throat> they flee the synagogue to find their Roman enemies, the leaders of the Herodian party, and grovel at their feet, seeking counsel on how they might work together to destroy Jesus. From here on, the shadow will hover over the ministry of Jesus. He will continue as the servant Lord, but always with a price on his head. Jesus has entered into his ministry with a mix of opportunity and opposition. Jesus has healed and helped. He has introduced compassion, forgiveness, hope, joy, grace, and mercy. Yet, with great sadness, Jesus would point to the company of the Pharisees who are so spiritually bankrupt that they have not only rejected the spirit of their own scriptures, 
but have joined with their enemies in a power plot to kill their Savior. Perhaps like the Pharisees, legalism in some churches have created a barrier of strict rules that make non-Christians feel uncomfortable. One such person has remarked, I was addicted to drugs, and in a million years, it wouldn't have occurred to me to approach a church to help. Every Tuesday, though, one church let an Alcoholics Anonymous chapter meet in the basement room. I started attending that group, and after a while, I decided that a church that welcomes an AA group, cigarette butts, coffee spills, and all, can't be too bad. So I made a point to visit a service. I've got to tell you, the people upstairs were threatening to me at first. They seemed like they had it all together while I was barely hanging on. People here dressed pretty casually, I guess, but the best clothes I owned were blue jeans and t-shirts. I managed to swallow my pride, though, and started coming on Sunday mornings as well as Tuesday nights. People didn't shun me. They reached out to me. It's here that I met Jesus. Jesus was a friend to sinners. They liked being around him, and they longed for his company. Meanwhile, oh, I spread that already. <laughs> Getting mixed up. To the Pharisees this May, Jesus had no qualms about socializing with sinners. He touched and was touched by those considered unclean. Instead of the message, no undesirables allowed, he proclaimed, in God's kingdom, there are no undesirables. By going out of his way to meet with Gentiles, eat with sinners, and touch the sick, he extended the realm of God's mercy. Grace introduces a world of new logic. Because God loved the poor, the suffering, the persecuted, so should we. Because God sees no undesirables, neither should we. By his own example, Jesus challenges us to look at the world with grace-healed eyes. Jesus was often moved by compassion, and in the New Testament times, that word was used maternally to express what a mother feels for her child in a womb. Jesus went out of his way to embrace the unloved and the unworthy, the folks who don't matter to the rest of society, because they embarrass us. We wish they would go away. To prove that even nobodies matter infinitely to God, Jesus embraces them. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus' glory was that he laid aside his glory. And the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcasts. Jesus proves in person that God loves people not as a race or a species, but as individuals. We matter to God. And by God loving the unlovable, he has made us lovable.
Alright, we pray God that uh, we uh, take this message to heart and that uh, we reflect on that and, and test our own heart with your word this week. Um, and in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.